Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's weekly podcast. We're delighted to be with you today. I'm John Howard, the editor of Capital Weekly. I'm joined today by Tim, Fo- our very own Tim Foster. Hello. And by Jack Cavanaugh, the one and only Jack Cavanaugh, the founder of Rough and Tumble, <laughs> oh, uh, a you. website that we all go to all the time. And I sort of live by Rough and Tumble. Well, uh, welcome, Jack. That's so nice of you. To, and you know, I, 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 I was floored when I came in. You know, I've. I have to honestly tell you that I have been in a lot of green rooms, you know, over the years. I've been doing this for, for a long, long time. But the uh, foie gras uh, finger sandwiches, you know, and the martini fountain were just, it, it was off the charts. Kathy know? Brown insisted on the martini fountain. Really? She, she did. Oh, she said the, I, the I only way was, we were going to be serious. It's just, you know, it... it it tells you something about Capital Weekly that you're really, you know, the hospitality was We're not sure fabulous. what it tells us, but it does sell something. It does say something. We think of these offices as lavish and palatial. The best part of this discussion, I have to say, is before we turn the microphones on, we just got, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we just got a great uh, tutorial in uh, audio broadcasting and in uh, fixing our microphones right for that. We thank you. I think we sound as good now as we've ever sounded. At least well, I do. That's a low bar, John. That's a low bar. <laughs> Jack, I wanted to ask you about the, um, the magic of rough and tumble. Everybody I know who follows politics goes to rough and tumble. I actually had people a while back call and say, hey, you, that was a good story, and I know it was on rough and tumble. It's like you validate the stories that all of us do, and we always want other reporters to read This stuff podcast shows up on rough and tumble. So, you know. I just try to create a safe place for people to go to find out what's going on in California. That's simple. Now, what do you define safe space? Well, the Internet, if you think about it, is uh, you could actually describe the Internet as sort of like a, like a sewer, you know, uh, with uh, bad information, viruses, and all kinds of other stuff out there surrounding all the good stuff that you really d- depend on the Internet for. And so uh, it's very easy to just kind of try to find something about California on the Internet. And you don't know whether you're going to fall into uh, a place that's going to provide you with some really slanted or misinformation. So I try to create a place where you can uh, trust the information and use it. You know, it's, it's, so it's, yeah, try to find a safe place, try to provide a safe place for people to go to find out what's going on in California. And, and there one are stop. It's sort of a one-stop shopping, I mean, for me, and go to one site and see nothing. stories. Nothing on Rough and Tumble is originally generated. All it is is a laundry list, a shopping list of links to what is already out there. You know, we, in California, if you think about it, uh, we are blessed with some of the greatest newspapers and news organizations in the, on the planet. From Capital Weekly on down. Yeah, That's you know, uh, and I would actually throw in the L.A. Times on that, you yeah. know, and the Chronicle. And L.A. Santa's, Times local paper down in Los Angeles. <laughs> San Jose Mercury, the Orange County Register, you know, the San Diego Union, the Fresno Bee, the Sacramento Bee. You know. Riverside Press Enterprise. Wait, did you just put the Sacramento Bee after the Fresno Bee? I'm, Amy Chance is 
probably on her way right now to come and rip our rip our hair off. She could join the conversation. You know, uh, no reading record searchlight. Exactly. Or Bill Mercury. I'm I'm on a roll now. All right. What was the one in Merced that we Merced uh, Sunstar? Okay, you're right. The former wire service guy. Who, the one know. that had five or six clocks on the wall. Mm. London, New York, Paris, Rome, and then in the middle was Merced. Merced, yeah. Um, well, I liked it. I thought yeah. it was good. This goes back years, 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 years. I'm a young cub television reporter. There was a Sacramento company that was helping newspapers digitize, bringing uh, full-size computers uh, and mainframes into newspapers. And so we just, and then one of their clients was the LA Times. So I pitched the story, let's go do this story about this local company uh, working with the LA Times. And I can remember getting off the elevator, I think it was the third floor at that time, and the door opened, and it's the first time in my life I ever saw a newsroom as large as a full city block. Uh, you know, it, it kind of took your breath away to see something like that. And you, you talk about the, the uh, clocks on the wall and stuff. There was a whole bank of operators. This is now in the 70s. This goes way, way back. But there's a whole bank of operators on one wall just making international phone calls, hooking people hmm. up. Uh, you know, there's the big American flag was hanging from the ceiling with the calendar next to it. And we had to be very, very quiet because, you know, what? You know, in newsrooms, people are trying to think. So we try not to make too much noise and try not to be too, too distracting. But that was probably my first look at the size and scope of the news business that we all take for granted on our phones or in the newspaper or on television, you know, as, as a reader and a listener and a, and a viewer. We don't realize the size, what it takes to get all that stuff yeah. done. Well, and I'm sure that if you went into any newsroom today, 30 years later, you know, compared to what it would have been 1980 or 85, it would be a fraction of that. Well, I think one of the other differences, yeah. too, is they'd ask you to do some light vacuuming and empty the way <laughs> trash on the way out the door, yeah. and, you know, as well. You know, uh, yeah, that's changed. There's no question about that. However, the, the, the real core of what the stories are uh, has not changed. And how we get them has changed, and it will continue to change. It always will. I mean... People forget that uh, the reason why we have all these stories about the Civil War was the telegraph was invented. Hmm. That was the technology. That was the Internet, you know. Yeah. In fact, someone told me once that the uh, I'm a stickler for bylines. Uh, going back to I insist on bylines if I can do it in any way possible because I'm trying to create a safe environment for people to see this information. And a byline does that. It, it takes the story and puts a, a name on it. And apparently there's a, there is a, a legend, I don't know how true it is, but there is a story that back during the Civil War, when reporters were now able to file stories on the telegraph, the Confederates and the Union soldiers, you know, they realized there's propaganda advantage here. So I think it was the Union side required bylines. So they could track down where the information was going. Otherwise, you just couldn't get access to the uh, cheap seats at uh, the, the Battle of Bull Run or something like that. And then the Union reporters put on the names of their southern enemies as the, as the authors of the story and confused the hell out of everybody. Probably. 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 But the, 
Do you see where I'm going with this? I mean, the information that I put out there has got a name attached to it. And that's really important so that people can who consume this stuff can realize where it's coming from. There's a new trend now in collaborative journalism. I mean, you do it here at Capital Weekly. Um, someone will, and I'll give you an example of where I got into trouble with this. Uh, the Center for Investigative Reporting was doing a piece. They collaborated with Frontline. It showed up on KQED uh, website, uh, and it moved around. And when I, when I saw this, uh, I think I stumbled on the story in one of those places, uh, probably at KQED, KQED. And I noticed the byline said, so-and-so, Center for Investigative Reporting. So what I did is I went back to the original source. I will always try to do that, go back to the original source and put the link on the original source. So now the collaborators come to me and say, well, why did you go all the way back to the original source? I said, well, because uh, you may have changed the story a little bit. You had, may have taken the basic story and made it fit your publication uh, and someone else would do the same thing. So now you've got uh, three or four versions of the same story. And what I want to give to my readers is the original story. And as you see more and more collaborative journalism uh, coming together, which is where we're going in the, in the, in the 2016, that's something to keep in the back of your mind. Uh, where is this originally coming from? Um, because you have one set of fact checkers at Center for Investigative Reporting may not be the same set of fact checkers at another place yeah. or another place. Sure. You know, we're getting into collaborative uh, journalism as well. I mean, we've used stories from the Marshall Project, uh, which covers, Marshall Project is a nonprofit, and it covers corrections, prison issues across the country. One of the stories we ran recently was uh, one of the, it was a double byline. One of them was Bill Keller, former executive editor of the New York Times. I never thought we'd have his byline in Capital yeah. Weekly, but there we did. Fairwarning.org, Brian Joseph's had a couple pieces in. Um, Dan Weintraub's California Health Report, we love his stuff. We've used it. He's, he allows us to use it. We, he, we use it by permission. Um, and, so we're uh, getting into that more. It gives us more content. Maven's Notebook as well? Yes, Chris Maven's Austin. Notebook. Uh, we've, Chris Austin's Maven's Notebook covers water issues we've used. Well, here's how I use it. I don't have time to go to every single original source out there. I just got an email today discussing this, uh, uh, for example. Um, I depend on the fact checkers and the producers at Capital Weekly KQED, KPCC, Capital Public Radio, KPBS, um, who do use collaborative stuff, I depend on them to verify that they can stand behind the story itself because I don't have time to do that. Yeah. So it's, it's when I zoom by uh, KQED or if I zoom by Capital Weekly and I pick these things up, I'm depending on, I, I consider you to be a good source. Um, and maybe we're, we're getting too picky about this. I don't know. But I, as far as information that people, you know, vote on, people who uh, select political candidates on, people who get involved or don't get involved in issues, that's really important. I really think that's something well, we have to do. And it's something that's really changed in my lifetime. I'm 50. And I don't remember 30 years ago people having access to, to so many quote-unquote news sites, which are really just propaganda sites, but look, 
very good, like, don't they? They look like news sites if you really don't know. And you know, perfect example is many of my friends on Facebook are Bernie Sanders, rabid Bernie Sanders supporters, and they share quote unquote news stories that when I look at them, I realize are not news stories. There's, you know, yeah. the recent news story was that Bill Clinton is about to be arrested for, uh, you know, for going into voting places and trying to twist voters' arms. Well, this is not happening in the news stories that I'm reading. Of course, I look it up, and it's not. That's not an accurate representation of what's going on. But they absolutely believe that this is news and that the quote-unquote mainstream media is not reporting this. Mm-hmm. And if you try to suggest to them that this is not a massive conspiracy to keep them from hearing about Bernie Sanders, they flat out don't believe it. They just don't understand the difference between this site that they're looking at as a legitimate news source and an actual legitimate news source, which is trying to represent news stories in an unbiased manner. They just don't get it. They also don't understand the difference between an editorial and an article. They'll say, well, the New York Times says that Clinton should be indicted. It's like, well, no, this editorial written by this person that doesn't work for the New York Times says that. Okay, here's another thing. I grew up uh, delivering newspapers, okay? Um, And I, I am old enough to have lived through the era when there were only a well, most, no, I take that back. Most metropolitan areas had a couple of newspapers. But newspapers were part of your life. Uh, birth announcements, two obituaries, and everything in between. It was part of the culture of your life. It's what you talked about around the dinner table. It's what you uh, lined the parakeet cage you know, later on. You know, it was just all part of it. There were only basically two, maybe three uh, television networks. And it was uh, it was appointment journalism. Everybody gathered around the TV at a certain time because they wanted to watch the news. And I'm old enough to remember when the news was only 15 minutes long. Douglas Edwards in the news. Yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, a major thing when NBC expanded it to, my God, half an hour, you know. And, and they did it in color. And they did it in two cities, David and uh, David Brinkley and Chet Hawley. Good night, Chet. Good night, David. I'm in Washington, and you're in New York, and you're not. You know, it's, I, I remember all that. It's totally changed now. Yeah, totally. Uh, I can now walk into the restroom, you know, sit down and look at my Twitter feed and see the Pope in real time giving communion, you know, on Easter. That was unheard of before. No, it's... A- it's a different world. So, somewhere along the line, you have to find a safe, defend, dependable place, with, a safe place to get information. And I'm hoping Rough and Tumble is one of those mm-hmm. safe places. I've always thought of it that way. and uh, I try to keep it so Very habit-forming, too. Well, yeah. I try to keep it so that everyone feels comfortable. I mean, we will have uh, Phil Tronstein and Jerry Roberts screaming from the left, and we will have you know people screaming from the right occasionally. So that everybody feels comfortable there. One of the sad things about journalism these days is uh, be, because the, 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 the finances are dropping out of it, yeah. that uh, uh, publishers have to do whatever they can to monetize whatever they can. And yeah. uh, it's hard to... Uh, you well, know, a, valu- okay, a valuable thing about uh, rough and tumble, more than the balance is the hierarchy of stories. Someone as you have taken a look at stories. This is the most important one. This is the second most important. This is the third, just like an editor at a newspaper or at a TV station. There's a value judgment as to what you think is the most important. And that's one of the things that newspapers bring, TV stations too, I mean TV news, but 
so the reader gets a comfort, you know, gets there's a comfort level there that they're seeing the most important stuff of the day, which is what the readers care about. And, you know, as far as the opinion goes, we get that all the time. Like, you know, Tim had mentioned, I'll get calls from people that say, you know, you did an article on so-and-so. Well, we didn't. Someone wrote an op-ed or a commentary on a particular subject, but the, but readers, especially younger readers, conf- they sort of confuse that with yeah. actual conventional right. news, and it's you know it's difficult. You know, also on the bylines, just one thing on the byline. I know we talk about this, we disagree a bit, but I love the Economist. That's why you don't see. That's why you do not see links to the Economist on Rough and Tumble because there are no bylines. There are no bylines on it. So a story in the Economist. The entire economist is behind that story. Right. So the source, the comfort level, to the extent you have it reading the economist, many people don't. But if you do, that that's okay, here's something the, I find very here's positive. The rever- here's the reverse of that. As we know, there's a huge ideological difference between the editorial board at the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. and the very straight and narrow reporting of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Take away the bylines, and by default... Uh, anything that's in the Wall Street Journal will default to the editorial position of the Wall yeah. Street Journal. That's the thing that I, that, that personally I worry about. Yeah. But yeah. I, I'll do a couple other things. I mean, there are a lot of people will cover the same story. Yeah. If it's a major story, there'll be like uh, six different versions of it. And I'll try to include as many of those as I possibly can because uh, if it's a statewide story, the chances are very good that it will be interpreted and reported in a little differently in, in the San Francisco area, in the Central Valley, in the San Diego area, and in Los Angeles. They'll have just a little different spin on it, and they are approaching those stories from a different perspective, and they uh, have they have a, a different set of questions they want to ask about those particular stories. That's why you see those duplicate uh, uh, versions of the story. Again... And it also helps make it a safe place to save yeah. information. Yeah. You know? yeah. I like that too. It gives it spread and breadth and well and I think it sense. also one thing I like about that is that it actually shows how widely a story is being being disseminated. Some stories that you think would be a really big story, you look and only one or two people are covering it, you think, oh, maybe this is not yeah. as big deal as it would at seem at first glance. You look and if if there's seven papers covering it or seven news sources covering it, you know that it's a big deal. And sometimes, you know, you have six people, six news organizations covering the same story, and oftentimes the leads are similar. But there's usually somebody that just nails the lead, just yeah. gets it just right. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And we know a couple of people who can do that yeah. extremely well. Oh, yes. There are some legendary ones out there. And I, uh, exactly. Well, there's another thing, too. Um, some organizations have uh, write better headlines than other ones do. And as far as the format of Rough and Tumble, what you're going to get is three things. You're going to get the headline, a lead, and a link. That's it. That's all there is. It's one sentence. So um, I'll you know, be looking at ver- various versions of these stories, and lo and behold, there'll be a couple of people who will nail the headline, nail the headline, nail the headline, and there'll be a couple out there that will just... They was they obviously were so busy, they didn't have, uh, you know, a chance to, to do it right, and you'd be surprised uh, some of the publications that do terrible headlines. Uh, Headless body in topless bar. 
We've got to, I have to have a story that will go with that. Or killer's gat found. There are no headline writers left in newsrooms, are there? I mean, it's it's all generated. I don't know. It's probably generated by the, the original person who generates. Uh, see, that was the thing. Social media plays into this a little bit, too. I can remember years ago, um, you'd be out doing a live shot on television at a breaking news story. And... Uh, it was when Kathleen Brown and Pete Wilson were running neck and neck. It was like two days before the election or something like that. I found my, I covered something in San Francisco. I found myself uh, on the pier by Sinbad's next to the Bay Bridge. You know, it was the live shot from San Francisco. It was all set, ready to go. Clock is time. It was going on the air at 5 o'clock. Clock is ticking. And all of a sudden, my cell phone rings, and it's uh, Dan Schnur. He says, oh, Jack... Just to let you know, Kathleen Brown's uh, campaign just ran out of money. Okay. Oh, thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. Looking at the <laughs> at the phone, realizing I have 15 minutes to try to nail down that story. I had no idea whether it was true or not. Not that Dan Schnur yeah. would lead you astray. Well, yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I said, okay, thanks, Dan. Appreciate that. Now, how do I? What do I do? Okay. I called a friend that I knew who worked in uh, a bureau in Los Angeles, passed the story on. He says, oh, we have a crew with Kathleen right now. He gets on the phone, calls, you know, so within five minutes we're able to nail down the story. You, You couldn't do that 10 years ago. Or 15 years ago. I mean, you'd have to wait till the next edition came out. Hmm. There's another side to it that is a little dangerous. And I see it with social networking all the time. The old rule was you you didn't have to be too accurate with the facts at a live shot on a breaking news story because you're going to be back on the air again in 15 minutes and you can fix it. And so it was like a moving target. And that's what you see on a Twitter feed. Right now, yeah. uh, the information you have, you you might think it's gospel. No, no, it's a moving target that is going to change. All yeah, the I know. Time. On major news stories, like you know, you see a shooting where they have twenty people, and yeah. inevitably, eighty percent of the original reported facts will be changed within an hour of that story. Exactly, exactly. Know. But you know, people they just feel compelled to get something out there, and they have to be first. And personally, I would sort of rather it be really accurate, but I understand that there's a pressure to get something out there, and you get you get some information. The class is they're listening to the police scanner. Police scanner has no; they don't have to be accurate. They just have to give information. Right. Well, you report a police scanner. You're, uh, Tim, you know, I cannot tell you how many times I have sat there at two o'clock in the morning, and I've got the email with this great story, and I, I am I sit on it. I would rather be last and right yeah. rather than do the misinformation. But, you know, then it's the other thing. I pinch myself once in a while. I, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and email, boom. It was David Siders from the uh, Sacramento Bee. Yeah. Well, he was in Paris, and it was at the, with the governor at the, uh, the summit, the economic, the environmental summit. And it was just a friendly note, just to let you know, just posted something on the, on the Bee, and, uh, oh, yeah, there it is, boom, done. Then I thought for a minute, wait a minute, that was David Sider. He was in Paris, yeah. <laughs> for crying out loud. And I'm sitting here, you know, at 2.30 in the morning. It's like, 
I have to pinch myself once in a while. Sure. I mean, I went to I went to Europe. I backpacked in Europe when I was in, in Europe. 1995, and I didn't talk to my friends or my family. I was gone for two months. I think I made two phone calls from a phone booth. Yeah. Once in Greece, and you know, for all I knew, my dad had passed away while I was gone. There was nothing, and I actually had a friend in Paris who was holding letters for me. Because it was passing, I knew I'd be passing through there on a certain date. So I told people, if you want to get a hold of me, send a letter to Nicola, this address, I'll get it sometime in September. Mm. And that's that was 1995. Right. What a different well, world. There was that one time, you were in, I think you were in Germany. Yeah. And we were talking, Kathy and I were talking to you on the cell phone. I think we had the speaker on, on our end, and you were outside of a nightclub you're either waiting to go in to do with your band you're either yeah. waiting to go in to do a gig or finishing a gig sitting on the curb in front of a german nightclub and here we are talking on this true yeah it's kind of I, amazing yeah. I, you know i took my vacation went over there played music with some friends of mine and because we are a small operation of three i think we might have been four at that point but there's no one else to do what i do so yeah. i was working on my cell phone from all over germany and europe and, you know, occasionally I would have to call people who were either putting ads in or they were getting messages out or, or whatever, sponsorships. Yeah. And here I am from, you know, yeah. from Cologne, Germany, sitting outside of a bar that's, you know, full of drunken rabble-rousers. And I'm trying to tell people, well, yes, if you want to, it should be a 300 by 250 ad. <laughs> well, know? speaking of drunken rabble-rousers, that seems like a good time to wrap the conversation up. Is the martini fountain still low? Is it still? <laughs> Kathy may have drained it while we were talking. but <laughs> So, um, Jack Cavanaugh, thank you very much. Tim Foster, thank you. I'm John Howard, editor of Capital Weekly. I thank everybody, and thank you for listening. Yeah. And we'll catch you next time around. The Capital Weekly podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.